All right, well, good morning. Uh, so glad to be with you guys this morning. I'm going to take a second and set this over here so I have room. Uh, there we go. Okay. Uh, so excited to be back with everyone this morning. If I didn't get to talk to you beforehand, if Emily and I didn't get to talk to you, we'd love to talk to you afterwards. Uh, we just love being able to see all of our friends and our family because you guys were a lot like family because we spent so much time with you over six years. And so it's always good to come home, you know? Uh, it's always good to come back to your home roots, and uh, we're just excited to be with you here this morning. Uh, when Aaron asked me to come here and uh, fill in for him, I said, absolutely, would love to do it, mark it down, and uh, glad it worked out. You can go ahead and take your Bibles to Romans chapter 15 this morning. Romans chapter 15. This morning we're going to be talking about a theme of hope, hope. And in order to do so, we're going to look at a passage that you might not actually think that we would normally look at when it comes to the subject of hope, but what we're going to see in this passage is there's a negative, there's a distraction from hope, but there's also a positive, there's a message of hope found in the first 13 verses of Romans chapter 15. The book of Romans, you might already know it. Who was it written to? Who? The Romans, right? That's right, the church at Rome. And it was written by the apostle, there we go, okay. It's okay to talk in church, right? It was written by Paul to the church at Rome. And if you know anything about Paul, Paul was a really, 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 really intelligent man. He was. You actually can study his life and you can find that he was uh, schooled with some of the most brilliant minds at the time. He had an education in the Jewish religion that would have far surpassed many of his day. He even had dabbled and delved into certain educations in more of a um, Gentile background, a non-Jewish background, but he was very well-rounded in his understanding and his training. And when he wrote the church at Rome, he did so in a way that was very logical and put together, because when we read God's word, we read it and we see that God somehow still allowed men to let their personalities shine through on the pages of Scripture, even though he's the one who told them the words to write and inspired his word and put it into a book for us to still have to this day. And I don't really know how it all works together, and I don't think anyone does, but he did allow their personalities to work through, and Paul's personality works through in Romans. I'm telling you what, just as intelligent and logical as he was in his life, the book of Romans is the same way. Romans chapter 1 through 3 is broken up into a section, and the whole section is this. Everybody is a sinner, right? He just started out with a really uh, good gut punch to everybody reading at the church at Rome. He was like, hey, if you're a Jewish person, you're a sinner, Romans chapter 2. Hey, if you're a Gentile person, Romans chapter 1, you're a sinner. Romans chapter 3 is going to sum it all up, and he's going to say, Jew, Gentile, alien, whoever you are, all of you all, are sinners. We all start from the same spot. Then he switches over in Romans chapter 4 and 5 and he says, hey, we started out with the concept that everybody's a sinner, but we're going to give some hope here, some positive. There is a way to be forgiven of your sins and to experience a relationship with God. And he presents the concept of us getting the grace of God by us simply having weak human faith in God. And he actually goes back and he's going to say, it doesn't matter whether you're alive right now after Jesus died or whether you were alive back before Jesus died, everybody alive from all time, if they had a relationship with God, it was through faith. Then he comes into Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, and he's going to talk about, okay, you can have a relationship with God, but after you have a relationship with God, what does that look like? And he spells out the process that we refer to in the church world as sanctification, being made more like Jesus once I have a relationship with him. Then he takes a turn off, uh, kind of a detour in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. And you got to remember the church at Rome was made up of Jews and Gentiles. That means people who had had the message of God for a long time church people in our day would be a way to think of it. And then Gentiles, people who had not had access to this message for a long time, and the only way they had access was through 
the Israelites. And it was through them displaying the glory of God to the nations. But now they had a new hope and message through what Jesus had done for them. And Paul called himself even a messenger to the Gentiles. He was taking the hope of God specifically to all the nations to let them all know what was going on. And so you had people who had grown up for a long time believing in God and people who are brand new. How many of you all think that there could be some issues that might rise to the surface there? So what started to happen was the Jews were like, hey, I'm better than you because I had this whole thing way before you ever probably were even born, so I'm way, way better off than you. And the Gentiles were like, hey, look, I know you think you're better off than me, but actually, like, Jesus came and you rejected him, so who's actually the one who's better off here because you're looking pretty bad at this moment, right? And there was some strife going on there. So Paul takes Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, and he wants to talk about how God has not forgotten his people Israel, how there's a plan in the past, there was a plan, there's a plan in the present, and there's a plan in the future, and he will continue to love the people of Israel, but he also has the message for the entire world of the hope of the gospel. Then we get to the section that we're going to be dealing with, and that's Romans chapter 12 through basically about Romans chapter 15 is more of a practical teaching of Paul talking to them about how do you just do life? That's a good question, isn't it? You ever think about it, like, how do you just do life, right? On a daily basis, how do I follow after Jesus? We have all these church words and church ter terms and these ideas of what it means to follow after Jesus, but like, when the rubber meets the road, what does it actually look like to follow after Jesus? And he opens up Romans chapter 12, and he's like, hey, here's what it looks like. Lowest level, lowest form of Christianity is you give up everything in your life and you follow after God. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The base form of Christianity is another way to read that. It's just reasonable. It's not for the apostles. It's not for pastors. It's not for, for uh, deacons. It's not for people who've been saved a long time. No, when you meet Jesus... The reasonable thing is that every day you wake up and you live as a living sacrifice, someone who's given up everything to follow after him. He goes on and he talks about life in the body. And then in Romans chapter 14, he's really going to dig down into this idea of one another's. Now remember, Jews, Gentiles, they weren't getting along. They even had different ways of living, different ways of talking, there was a lot of different things going on here. Did, had different stories about how they knew God. And Paul's going to spend like all of Romans chapter 14 talking about, hey, you all need to, instead of looking at each other as the weaker person or the stronger person, you need to realize that you all are both in this together and work together to follow after me. So if you think that you're the stronger person, then you know what you need to do? You need to humble yourself and reach down and help the weaker brother. And he just like works through this whole passage and his whole point is get over how you feel about one another and look to God and follow after him and help each other out. That's the, that's the base idea of Romans chapter 14. And then we come to Romans chapter 15 verse 1. And he's going to continue the thought, but he's basically at the very end of the thought. You ever read through an entire book and then there's like a summary? He's in the summary. And he's in the conclusion where he's closing it down and he's driving the point home. And he's going to present a concept of hope in this passage as he drives home this concept of living life together. You know, wrong expectations can zap hope and faith right out of you. Have you ever thought about that? Wrong expectations can zap hope right out of you. You say, well, what do you mean when you say hope? What we're talking about is we're talking about an earnest expectation. An earnest expectation. Do you have hope this morning? Do you earnestly expect to know God? Do you earnestly expect and just long 
to see God work in your life and to draw you closer to himself? Do you, do you earnestly expect and hope that God is going to use your faithful service here at his church to reach the community around you? Do we have hope? Romans chapter 15 verse 1 starts off like this and it says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have, let's say that word together, hope. Let's try it again. Hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. He kind of puts a capstone on Romans 14 and the idea of working one another, with one another together no matter if somebody has a weakness or a strength working together for the common cause of following after God and glorifying him. Then he builds on this concept of hope that he presented a little bit in those first seven verses in verses 8 through 13. And what he's going to do is he's going to put a capstone and a summary that God has come to work in everyone's life, Jew or Gentile. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to the, to the Jew, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles, there's, there's the other group, might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, all Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, and even he who arises to rule the Gentiles are the nations, and him will the nations or the Gentiles hope. Verse 13, may the God of hope. God is a God of hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. If you study the Bible, you will find that common words mean something in a passage. And in the passage that we just read, the concept of hope was mentioned three times. And in fact, the concept of hope was mentioned as God being a God of hope. So we know that this is a very, very important idea in this passage. This morning, we're going to begin by looking at the distraction from hope. There's a distraction, but we're also going to see the message of hope at the very end. Let's just pray really quickly, and then we're going to dive right in. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for your goodness. We give you praise, Lord, just for your character, that you're a God of hope, that you are a God who can give us hope in the midst of chaos. We love you, and we thank you, Lord, for all your goodness to us, and in Jesus' name, amen. The distraction from a hope is very simple. You can put it down in one word. It's the distraction of pride. It's pride. You read verses 1 through 7, and you are presented with a concept of pride versus humility. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. This is, if you've read Romans 14, you'll know he's talking to people who thought that they were strong and that they had it all together and that there was weakness in the other people around them. Now, if we just look out in life, that is a true concept. But you want to know something that strength does many times? It gives way to pride in our lives if we do not guard it. It's very easy to become proud when you're strong. One of my nephews, I was talking to him yesterday, actually, and he's going to play football for the first time. He's going to play football this fall. And he's probably about, oh, nine, I think, give or take. And um, he's a big boy. Um, he, he is a big nine-year-old. He is one of the biggest nine-year-olds I've ever seen. He, he is the same size as, like, 
a sibling who is like four years older than him. He's just a, just a big guy, right? He's looking forward to playing football. So we were talking yesterday, and he said, you know, Uncle Steven, I'm really looking forward to playing football because I'm going to be the biggest kid out on the field. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to crush people. And I said, well, that might work in eight and nine, maybe, but there's always the chance that somebody else is bigger than you. But I said, you want to know what, buddy? If you don't get that attitude under control of thinking that you're going to crush people and you're the biggest person in the room, you're still playing football in high school. That's going to come back to bite you really bad. Because I was like, there's not always going to be you're the biggest person in the room. Now, I use that as an illustration of just a kid who he is. He's bigger than everybody, and he wants to just go crush people on the football field, right? But how many of you all have ever noticed in your life that when you're strong in an area, that it kind of leads to a sense of pride in your life? Yeah, I'm, I'm really good in that area of life. I'm really good at helping people, or uh, I'm really good at breaking down God's word, or I'm really good at serving, or I'm, I've got that one talent that just nobody else has. And if we do not guard against that, it can lead to pride. Most likely, this idea of the one who is strong, after reading through Romans 14, refers to the mindset of the Jews in the church at Rome. They viewed themselves as the strong ones because they had had a relationship with God through the ages. Thus, they are strong. But if you read into verse 2 and continue reading in this passage and don't stop at verse 1, Paul takes great care to negate the higher ground mentality of I am stronger than you. Because you want to know what he says? Hey, strong people help the weak. And don't please yourselves. Let each of us Please his neighbor for his good to build him up. He says, strong or weak, sure. Strong people help the weak people out. Either way, every Christian should be working to lift and build one another up. Pride is a distraction from hope. He continues on, and he says in verse Three, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He literally lifts up Jesus as the ultimate guide to pleasing others and humbling ourselves to honor others before ourselves. What greater illustration of humility than the Son of God who gave up his home in heaven to enter into the body of of a human man to walk on this earth. Why? To grant us complete and utter forgiveness of our sins and to be the all-sufficient payment and sacrifice for us. I don't know about you, but that's about the best picture of humility I think we could come up with. He then goes on, and he says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instructions, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant to you to live in such harmony with one another. The same God, the God of endurance and encouragement the, the, that brings hope, may he grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify God. The language here is presenting kind of opposites. You can live for yourself, and you don't have to be following after the God of endurance, of encouragement. You don't have to be in his word. You, you can have, buy into the stronger than everyone else mentality and view yourself as uh, the best thing that God has ever gifted to those people around you. You can live in pride, or you can live in harmony with others and experience encouragement experience harmony, and experience hope through following after God. Pride is a huge distraction from hope. Pride, though, many times can lie underneath the surface of our lives. Because ultimately, we might not be very proud with others, but we can be really proud before God. 
I have been confronted recently with how proud I am before God. This past um, three months, uh, many of you have followed our journey with IVF and uh, so on on our Facebook, and we have uh, had a real uh, journey the past three months. And you want to know what it taught me? It taught me that I am an extremely proud person. I like me. I like me. Through some of the journey, it was just times where you didn't want to continue on, and it was inconvenient to serve my spouse, and I like me. But where I really got confronted with pride was when I expected God to do something the exact way that I wanted him to do it, and it didn't happen the exact way that I wanted to do it, is that actually acceptable? So I remember I uh, actually spoke out of Romans fifteen thirteen back in May at a uh, pastor's meeting on hope. We can have hope together in the body, right? Talking to pastors, it's literally just great text, right? We can have hope together, working together in the body. And I was very, at that moment, hope-filled because... Things were looking good. It was going well. I was, in my mind, doing the right things. I was praying. I was seeking God. In my mind, I thought I was having faith, right? We'll talk about that in a minute. But I thought I was having faith. And then three days later, we got news that did not match my expectation. And you want to know what happened? For about two and a half weeks, I actually had to answer some questions in my life of, okay, so let's step back here. If God doesn't meet my expectations, is he still good? Now, I know the answer, right? <laughs> like, like, I think we know the answer. But how many of you know it's different to know the answer then believe the answer right in your heart. I, I was able to quote all the verses. If I sat down and Emily and I, we had some conversations about it, she was able to tell me verses and I was literally able to almost quote them before they were coming out of her mouth, right? But I had an expectation based out of me thinking I could control my life and know my life the best, which, by the way, that's pride. And my pride was blinding me to the fact that just because my expectation is not met does not mean that God is not still good. It means that he is the one that I should be expecting and hoping in, not a situation to work itself out the way that I want it to. Pride is a huge distractor from hope. It'll take you and it'll zap the hope right out of you because you had an expectation. I thought God was going to do things this way or I just thought life was going to work out that way, right? Maybe it wasn't even God specifically working. We know he's sovereign, but maybe it was just that we live in a broken down, sinful world and people were sinners and things did not work out the way that they should have in a perfect world. And that didn't meet my expectation. You might be there this morning. You might be right in that specific arena in life. And your hope in life is completely gone. It's completely empty. I have good news for you. Hope can be found in the midst of chaos. Put yourself in the shoes of the church at Rome. Fights, right? I mean, if you read some of the things Paul says, there was some serious tension in the church at Rome. It was uncomfortable, okay? He was very straightforward in some places in Rome, Romans. Things are not going well. There's chaos. There's hurt feelings. They live in a chaotic culture to start with in Rome. You could go back and study the culture, but I mean, it was just absolute chaos. Persecution. 
Then add into the fact that they're having trouble getting along with each other in the middle of it all, and you have just a great storm of chaos. But Paul tells them there's hope in the middle of your chaos. It's the message of hope. It begins in verse 8. Well, it begins a little earlier, back in verse uh, about 5, but it continues on and it really amplifies in verses 8 through 13. There's three elements to the message of hope found in these verses. The first element is this, hope is built. Hope is built. Mark it down, hope doesn't just happen. It doesn't. And many times if it is, it's on a whim and it's an empty, shallow hope that's just going to fade because hope is built. And where you build your hope or where you see your hope built will many times determine where the hope takes you. I told the story earlier. My hope was in an expectation that God would do something very specific in a way that I wanted him to do when I wanted him to do it. He didn't do it, so my hope didn't pan out. Because I had built my hope, not his hope, I had built my hope around my expectation. Hope is built every time, and where hope is built will determine where hope takes you. We see three ways that hope in this passage is built, the hope of the Bible, the hope of God. Not human failing hope, but the perfect hope of God How is it built? It's built in three ways. Number one, in verse four, we see that it's built through endurance and encouragement. Endurance can simply just be boiled down to the idea of enduring through the experiences of life. And how many of you know that to be true? The longer you live, the more you see, the more you see God work, the more you can hope in who he is because you know that he is good. The more that you know God, The more that you know about his character, the more you can hope in him and place your hope in him as a person because you know him. He's a solid resting place through endurance, through experience. That's verse 4. We see that first of all. But then we also see that it's through the encouragement of the scriptures. Hope is also built up through the word of God. And I love Paul because he literally, God allows him to write right into this to where he quotes scripture to prove his point. He says back in verse 4, he says that hope for whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. He finishes up his thought and then listen to this. He comes down to verse 8 and he says, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Remember, he's writing to a specific church and he's answering their questions of how can we have hope in the midst of our missed expectations, our internal strife, and the chaos around us. And he's going to present to them, Jesus Christ is the answer and what he's done for you is the answer. And here's why I'm going to encourage you with scripture. He literally does it in verse 9 by quoting Psalm 1849, which they would have had and had read, especially if they grew up in a Jewish background. In verse 10, he, he quotes an idea and a principle found in Deuteronomy 32, 43. He then goes to verse 11 and he quotes Psalm 117, 1, and he finishes up in verse 12 by quoting Isaiah 11. He works through this passage and he, he presents a principle earlier. Hey, hope is built. Hope's built through endurance, but it's also built in, through encouragement of God's word. And guess what? I'm going to encourage you in God's word and prove to you the point that hope is built through his word. When our hope is failing, we can run to the all-sufficient God of the universe and we can do so by reading his perfect word. We can reset our misplaced expectations through getting in the word. We used to do, uh, in youth group, we would do the Psalm 34 challenge. Sydney, do you remember the Psalm 34 challenge? That's an ancient one there. That is an ancient one. This was a while ago. This was years ago. We did the Psalm 34 challenge, and here's the Psalm 34 challenge is. 
you got to read all the way through Psalm 34. There is, I believe it's 18 verses, 22. 22 verses. And you had to come up with all the individual promises that you could find in Psalm 34. Nicole's laughing because she's done this. And you had to find all the individual promises in Psalm 34 and write them down. And I can't remember. I think that there was a minimum of, it was either 15 or 18, I believe. There's a minimum of 15 to 18 in those 22 verses that if you read through, you could see the promises of God. And the reason we would do that is we would do it to reset our failed, misplaced expectations in God and others because we wanted to see who God was from his word and look to him and see his promises. The word of God can reset my expectations and it can give me the hope of God because I can see him for who he truly is. But we also see that in verse 13, the Holy Spirit builds hope in me. Hope's built. It's built through endurance, yes. It's built through encouragement from God's word, but ultimately as a Christian, the hope of God is built in me through the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 13 says that the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, by that, you may abound in hope. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. You want to know what that word abound means? It literally means to overflow. Have you ever gotten a uh, soda cup and gone up to the soda machine and you uh, put it in there and you locked it because you wanted to go over and get some napkins because you were going to pop right back over? Have you ever done this? Has anybody ever done Okay, maybe I'm the only one. So you're like multitasking. You walk up at McDonald's and you just like press it in. And if you do it right and get it like caught in one of the grooves, it'll stay on, right? Okay, nobody's tracking with me. I am the only one who does this, but um, I've done it before. You know, back when it was styrofoam, you could get it locked in there. It would stay on. You could run over here and get your lid, and you could get your straw and your napkins, and then you could come back and get it, and it would be, give or take, right up to the top, and you could get it, go get your meal, and be back in the, this was back when I used to, like, work landscaping, and you had to get back in the work truck. You could get back in the work truck in, like, five minutes, right? Now, Sometimes you would go over to get, like, the lid, and you know how, like, those lid, like, they've never made a good lid dispenser. Even the new ones are terrible, right? And so you get, like, 15 lids when you're trying to get one, so you're shaking them all around. You get a straw, but then you drop it, so you have to get another one. Then you get the napkins, and, oh, I forgot ketchup, and you're getting ketchup, and you forgot the cup underneath the soda dispenser, right? And you look back over, and what's it doing? just pouring out, right? Pouring out over the sides. It's disgusting. It's everywhere, right? That's the picture here. Abounding, overflowing, more than you need. The Holy Spirit of God builds hope in me. Hope is built, but hope also builds me. That's the second element of hope we see in this passage. Hope is built, but the hope of God, it's a different hope than the hope of humankind. The hope of God, it's built, but it also builds me. It works on me and it changes me. What does it produce in me? Well, verse 5, it produces harmony with others. <laughs> as I follow the God of, uh, God of hope, as I follow him and I seek his word and encouragement from his word. There's endurance. As this happens, I can live in harmony with others. Verse 5. And then you go down to verse 13, and it says that the God of hope, may the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace. Hope builds the joy of God in me. It puts it in my life, and it helps me have peace. The peace of God that passes all understanding as we would read in another part of the New Testament. Hope is not just built. It works on me and it builds in me. The hope of God builds me. But the last element of hope we see in this passage is this. 
It's not just that hope is built. It's not just that hope builds me. Hope has a duty. The hope of God has a duty. It's wrapped up in verse 13 there. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. In believing, it's this idea of faith. Faith. Faith in Scripture is active. You can read through Scripture and you see that faith is not just knowledge, right? Faith is action, right? That's why Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, follow me, right? That's what Jesus said. Why did he say that? Well, he was, he was appealing to them to take action and to follow after him to know him. Faith requires action. It's not just a passive knowledge. It is an active knowledge. I always used to use the illustration of, it's like working out at the gym, right? I can tell you I believe in working out at the gym. But if I don't ever go to the gym, do I actually believe that working out at the gym is good for me? No, I believe it here, but I don't believe it here. I don't have active faith that going to the gym is good for me because you want to know what I would do if I, went to the, if I believed it? I would get up and I would go to the gym. That's what I would do. Active faith. Faith is active. But also, how many of you have experienced that faith can be weak? Now, Jesus talked about faith as small as a mustard seed, right? And some people say, you know, well, that means that he was just saying that you only had to have a little and he would just do all this. I believe that when Jesus was given that parable, he was trying to explain to them that there's going to be times where your faith is only as small as a mustard seed, where you can barely see it because of the challenges of life, because of what is happening all around you, your faith is challenged and you only have the strength to lift up your arm towards heaven and say, God, I don't know how, I don't know why, but I believe in you. And I'm asking you to fill in the rest because I don't got anything left. Faith can be weak. It's active, but man, it can be weak. But ultimately, this is the truth about faith that we often leave out. Faith is founded in humility. Have you ever thought about, like, just the, just the terms we use in church? You know, like, talking to people who don't go to church is very intriguing. I would highly recommend, 10 of 10 recommend, because it shows you just some of the things that we say that you're like, why in the world? Would we say things like that, right? Or on the opposite side, it shows you, like, do I actually believe that? Like, right? Like, you know, like, you say things over and over, but you're like, hmm, I, I don't know if I actually believe what I was saying there, right? Faith is one of those things, because if you think about the concept of how we present faith and how the Bible presents the concept of salvation, being saved from my sins and literally sacrificing and giving up of my entire life over to him, to follow after him in faith. You want to know what that implies? It implies 100% complete humility. Because in order to give up everything that I have in order to follow after God, the one who I believe is better than everything, the one who I believe is worth everything because he's given me everything, I must humble myself and follow him. The faith that saves, right? But the faith that saves, I believe, is no different than the faith that continues saving me or changing me, if you want to put it in that language. As I follow after Jesus, I am completely changed, right? Concept of sanctification, Romans 6 through 8. If you read in church history, they would refer to it sometimes as the saving, right? Like you've been saved, you've been justified, but you are being saved also from the power of sin in your life. You're being changed. That faith is no different. It's the same 
faith. Why? Because getting, following after Jesus is not just a decision. It's literally a new way of life. And so faith implies that if I believe in God, if I have faith in God, I am submitting to his purpose and plan. A few weeks ago, I was telling you about that story about how we got like the bad news, right? After I thought I had had faith, right? You remember I said that? The reason I thought I had had faith is because I had been praying, man. Like I'm telling you, I was praying specific, right? You ever done that? It's not bad. I'm not here to harsh on that because I actually believe that there's scripture that says there are times that we should pray for specific things and seek the face of God and believe him to do things, okay? Those scriptures are real. But I was only living in that world. Does that make sense? That was the only place I was in. I wasn't reading the other scriptures in those couple of weeks of God's purpose and plan is greater than my desire, right? Okay, so I was only living in this area. I was taking a truth and making it, this is it. I had forgotten over here, there's a section of scripture that says, yes, but God ultimately is in control and sovereign. And if he chooses not to miraculously step into my situation, he is still the almighty, sovereign, wonderful king of the universe who I chose to follow when things were going like I thought they should. So he's still good enough to follow even right now. I had forgotten that, right? And I was living over here. So when we got the call about the bad news, you want to know what I said to my wife? Here's what I said. So what about me? That should tell you all you need to know, okay? If if your first sentence starts off with, what about me, right? We don't even need to go any further, right? But I said, so what about me? And my prayers, and at that time I said my faith, and I had even, guys, I had even gone a step forward and I had fasted for a couple of days. So I thought I was like cloud nine, right? And I said, what about me, my prayer, my faith, and my fasting? You want to know what that is? That's not faith. That's pride. Because ultimately what I had done was, this was not bad. Prayer, faith, fasting, good things. But I had restricted myself to that space alone to where if God did not respond to me and my expectation, he was wrong. And my hope was dashed. And I had to come to the understanding of, and it was a question I had to ask myself, and I'll ask you, the same question I asked myself, are you more interested in seeking God's hand to provide for you? Or are you more interested in seeking his face to sustain you? It was a question I had to ask myself. And in fact, my wife presented me with the concept of asking this. Are you, are we more interested in his hand of provision than his face of getting to know him and being sustained by a relationship with him? And you know what? In those days, we didn't have all the knowledge that we have now. And so you want to know that the question that I had to ask myself and come to a resolution on was this. If God chooses to not respond in the middle of this situation because we still had a whole nother round set up. And so at this moment, though, things are low, right? If God chooses to not respond, and we did all this time, all this money, and all of these things, and he doesn't respond the way that I expected him to, is he still worth following? Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. It took me about two and a half weeks to answer that question, okay? The whole idea of, oh man, we just got to answer that question instantly and just... No, it took me a little while to actually process it and believe it truly in my heart. But you want to know something? God 
the God of hope, the God of the Bible, he's worth it. And he is safe to hope in. He is safe to earnestly expect in. To approach in hope and to say, God, I earnestly expect and seek to know you. To see you just change my life radically and to see you wrap me up in your love like you promised in your word. That you would teach me your word through your spirit and that you would teach me your promises and that you would encourage me. That you would strengthen me. That you would use me to... Take your word and your message to those around me to be used by you. I am hoping in you. And you know what, God? Whether you do this or not, okay, but I would love to see you and earnestly expect to see you give us a kid. But you want to know what? That's not where my earnest expectation is founded in. The earnest expectation must be founded in me seeking after you. And I'm going to tell you my other hopes and my other expectations. And I'm going to tell you all about them. Why? Because I want to know you and I want to seek your face and see your face and know who you are. That is the hope of the Bible. That is the hope of God. And as we weakly, humbly believe and trod on through the chaos and trials of this life, the Holy Spirit of God builds in me hope. His word builds in me hope. Endurance builds in me hope. And it builds into me and it gives me the joy of God, the peace of God, and harmony around me with others as I continuously seek to place my earnest hope and expectation in God. So this morning, I would simply ask, are you looking and seeking God's face? Or are you seeking more from his hand? It's not wrong to ask God for things. Oh, trust me, that's not what we're saying. That, you can go and find it right there in his word. But what's more important to you? Is it more important what he gives to you or who he is? That's the question. And if all he ever gave you was himself and what he's already given you, would it be enough? Am I distracted and unwilling to humble myself and forgive others of their missed expectations in order to remove distractions around me? Remember the first part of Romans 15? There's distractions there. So if you have distractions from your hope, whether it's pride in your own life or maybe it's pride that's resulted in strained relationships with somebody else, are you willing to humble yourself and remove the distraction from placing your hope in God alone? Am I, are you willing to believe in him no matter what and allow him to build your hope? Notice as we read through this passage, it never once said that you're supposed to build your hope. It never once said that you're supposed to place your hope. You want to know why? Because our imperfect human placed hope typically easily gets distracted by pride. And so we must have God himself build his hope within us, and our duty is simply to actively trust and believe in him. I was talking with um, someone the other day, and we were talking about Christians and just how they, how Christians live, right? And this was an individual who, he is a Christian, he, he follows the Lord, but he had gone through some things in his life where he had had a time of his life where he did not very verbally and actively did not follow after God. So he has a different perspective than I do, and we were just talking about the church at large. And we got to talk about just Christians, how we live our normal daily lives. And you want to know a conclusion that I came to after talking with him? Christians often are the least hope-filled and hopeful people on the face of the planet. They are. We are. I am. <laughs> 
Christians are often the least hope-filled and hopeful people on the entire planet. Yet, we have the most reason for hope. If our faith is truly placed in where we say it is. If we serve the almighty creator of the universe, and he is the foundation of our hope, and he is the foundation of our faith, we have every reason to be the most hopeful and hope-filled person in the room every time. Now, does that mean that we don't experience sadness or we don't experience frustrations or we don't go through times where our faith is weakened and all we can do is get out of bed and reach towards heaven and just say, God, I don't really know today. You're going to have to know. That, like, we're not throwing that out the window. But we are saying that we have a reason to hope. But where is our hope found? Is it found in myself? Is it found in others? Is it found in things? Or is it found in the God of all hope. My wife has this phrase that she consistently tells me, and I love it, and it's this. He, God, is safe to hope. He's safe. You don't know where your hope's found at. You don't know if that expectation is right or not. Take it to him. He's safe to hope. And guess what? When you earnestly expect in him and expect and seek after him and seek after his face, he's safe. Because he responds. Even if it's not how I wanted him to respond, he responds. And he reaches out. Let's bow our heads this morning.